Zechariah chapter 6. More unusual visions. And uh, I will still admit I don't understand what they all mean. Remember, Zechariah didn't know and he had asked. Sometimes God told him, sometimes God did not. And I consult different books and uh, they have varying interpretations that go from ones that are overly literal when it's supposed to be figurative and other ones that are so liberal, not literal, but liberal, they say, oh, this is all myth and he made it up. And so we can avoid that. But it does take caution. And I remember three phrases that the great Jonathan Edwards would use in his writings and it would apply to unusual visions. He'd look at something or a topic and he'd say, tis possible. It means this. And then other times he'd say, tis probable. And then sometimes, tis certain. We need to know the difference when we interpret the Bible to say, I know what this means. It's obvious. In other words, I'm not sure what this means. And then sometimes we can say, I know what it does not mean. What the liberals think. And as we look at this, we'll again uh, draw out spiritual principles and practical lessons. We begin with verse 1. Then I turned and raised my eyes. Jewish way of saying I looked intently. And behold, four chariots were coming from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. Chariots. Those were discovered and manufactured centuries ago. You remember Joseph in Egypt rode in a chariot. And we know from archaeology and ancient writings, they could be with two wheels pulled by one or two horses, or sometimes four wheels, almost like a wagon. And sometimes they could hold only one person or two, like the Ethiopian eunuch and his assistant in the book of Acts, chapter 8. And uh, more recently, like the old cowboy movies, you'd have a buckboard and then you'd have a wagon. And then anybody ever seen sulky racing? Two wheels on on just just like pipes pulled by a horse. And uh, so but that gets back to the idea of a chariot. Chariots are mentioned in the Bible, for example. Some of the um, Canaanites made them out of iron, and that would be like a tank. Uh, They'd just go running right through their enemies and over them. It'd be like a war wagon. And of course, the most famous chariots are from one of my favorite movies, Ben-Hur. You remember the chariot race? Wow. Um, I've always wanted to ride in a chariot. I've also wanted to ride in a stagecoach and a tank with my head up through that porthole. Yeah, that's your pastor. Always wanted to ride in those. A chariot. Now, what does it represent? Well, they represent angels. Because Psalm 68, 17 and several other verses talk about God coming with his chariots, even his angels. So it's like angels riding them. And doesn't that sound like another vision in the Old Testament? Elisha and his assistant, and they looked out and they saw all these angelic warriors that were made of fire, including the chariots and the horses made of fire. Don't ask me to explain that, but this is probably talking about God sending these angels out around the world to do his bidding. And they come riding in through these two mountains. The guesses are, well, that would be between Mount Moriah, center of 
Jerusalem where the temple was built and the Mount of Olives coming through, maybe coming to the temple, perhaps. Others say, well, wouldn't this be the two mountains in Deuteronomy, Ebal and Gerizim, and one shouting out the blessings and the other curses? I'm not sure. Or it could just simply be symbolic about power and stuff like that. Do a, do a study on mountains in the Bible. I did a, a table talk Bible study once, and we looked at the significance of Mount Sinai with Moses, Mount Carmel with Elijah, Mount Ararat with Noah, and of course Mount Zion in the middle of Jerusalem. It's on a plateau or a mesa. And then of course the most important one is a hill on a hill called Mount Calvary, but many other ones there. And so it says they came in between these two, so that would be a valley or a canyon. Uh, Ezekiel mentions a valley of dry bones and Anybody here have been to the Grand Canyon? Okay. So it's something like that. And it says the mountains were made of bronze, some translate it brass, which is a sturdy alloy uh, metal of a dark uh, yellow. You remember there is the bronze or brass serpent. And Revelation 1 talks about the vision of Jesus and it says his feet look like brass that had been burnt in a fire, like a forge. And that's symbolic. So here come the chariots. And they're described in the next couple of verses. With the first chariot were red horses. With the second chariot, black horses. With the third chariot, white horses. With the fourth chariot, dappled or spotted horses. Strong steeds. We were introduced to these back in chapter 1. And then similar over in Revelation 6. There have been guesses why these colors... Uh, for example, in Revelation, they'll say, well, black stands for death, and red stands for disease, white stands for victory, dappled, maybe a combination of any of these, perhaps. But uh, this isn't little horses, so this, this is symbolic. Um, I remember hearing a famous preacher uh, address and say, are there, I was asked the other day, are there animals in heaven? He says, well, there are at least four horses, because the Bible says so. Uh, Logan, that was a preacher named Jack Hiles that said that. He said, there really is literal horses up in heaven. And then other people will say, oh, Pastor Daniel, there are dogs in heaven. Well, there's the hound of heaven, but that's only symbolic. So I say that to say these are symbolic of the chariots and the red horses, uh, just like the horses of fire that uh, Elisha saw. Now, some chariots just had one horse to pull it with one man. Other ones, two horses, rarely four horses, like all those chariots in Ben-Hur. What was it, like seven different chariots, each one with all white, all black, all whatever. And uh, I remember reading about how they made that movie, and it was filmed in Rome. And they said that was not easy to teach anybody. And it took the, the great um, Yakima Canute to teach them how to do this without being killed. And that, there was that scene where a guy got ran over by a chariot. He did survive. The rumor says he died. No, he did survive. But uh, four horses, and, um, Charlton Heston said that was not easy, even with camera tricks and angles, because they all want to go one way or the other, but to train him. And so here are these horses, uh, several horses leading chariots going in different directions. You know, not only do I want to ride in a chariot, but I'd like to ride in an old-fashioned 
stagecoach <laughs> out west. You know, giddy up there. And so some chariots and stagecoaches would have four horses. When I was a boy, there was a television show called Death Valley Days, and they were sponsored by 20 mule team borax. Don't know if anybody remembers that. And they'd show this wagon filled with heavy borax pulled by 20 mules. Remember that? And because that was a strong thing for them to carry. Well, these chariots here had several horses to pull them. Now, what do they stand for? The most popular explanation is that, well, these are talking about angels and perhaps like the rise and fall of certain kingdoms, because it is similar to the book of Daniel that keeps talking about four kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Be that as it may, we'll now go to verse 4. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, yet again, what are these, my Lord? I don't know. And so he asked, just like in school, whether public school, Christian school, private school, or home school, good way to learn is to ask questions from the students to the teacher and from the teacher to the students. And that's what we see in the book of Zechariah. And in our lives, ask questions of the Bible. I was reminded of Luke 2 when Jesus was 12 years old in the temple and Mary and Joseph scolded him. Don't you know we've been missing you for three days? And it says they found him both answering questions and asking questions. And that even the great theologians there were amazed. How does this boy know all this? Not just his answers, but his questions. That's interesting. Parents are amazed when a child asks a question, where'd that question come from? I never talked about that with you. And the level of a person's spiritual question indicates a lot about his heart, his interest, and how much he already knows. The other night, someone in this church said, can I have some time? And I said, sure. So we sat in my office for about half an hour. And he asked me 10 very good questions from the Bible. He says, now what about this in Genesis 6, these Giants, uh, are these people or angels or, or monsters or what? And then he asked 10 questions and I gave him good answers. So that's how you learn. Years ago, we used to have a young man here. And every week when I finished preaching, you know, pronounce the benediction, go out there. He was the first one out there. And for several years, he'd always ask a question of the week. Why am I saying this? Zechariah said, what are these, my Lord? This is how we learn to study the Bible, ask questions. Um, Kurt, you did that Bible course. The teacher will ask, who is speaking? Where is this? What does this mean? That's how you learn the Bible. And you come across a word you don't understand, go look it up in a dictionary or, or a Bible dictionary. So again, there's that lesson about questions. And I get asked questions by people here. And virtually every letter I get from all those many prison inmates, they'll ask questions about the Bible, or what should I do, or what does God say about this, or I heard somebody say that, and I get emails. Okay, verse 5 now. So the angel answered and said to me, these are four spirits of heaven. So he's identifying the chariots. The spirits are talking about angels. There are four spirits of heaven who go out from their station before the Lord of all the earth. Four spirits are four angels. Hebrews 2 says angels are ministering spirits. What do we mean spirits? It means that they're invisible, non-corporeal beings. They don't have bodies like we do. The um, Bible says God is spirit, not a spirit. He is spirit. He doesn't have a physical body. He's not limited 
like we would be. Angels are like that, but they are not omnipresent. They, they move. God doesn't have to move. He's already everywhere, but they're spirits. And it says four of them here. They could, that could be like the special living creatures in the book of Revelation. I think it's chapter 5. That are probably identified as angels. These could be high-ranking angels, but four of them, and then many other ones involved. And um, being spirits, they're often compared to wind. They travel very, very quickly. And wind is invisible, and so are angels. If you want to know more, several years ago, I did three messages on angels. Now, avoid some of the strange views that people have, and some people are obsessed. Um, there are two extremes. There are the liberals that say it's all myths, together with you know, fairies and stuff like that. And the other extreme is people that are obsessed, and they believe myths and rumors and superstition. And this was popular some years ago. People talked about having their pet angel, and they give them a name, and they send them to do things. The Bible says nothing like that. We don't give them directions. They take their orders from God. We can pray to God, send an angel to protect somebody. But we don't give them orders. They don't listen to our orders. They move very fast. They're invisible. But since they don't have bodies, that raises two interesting questions. Can they go through solid objects? Jesus went through a solid object, but yet he had a resurrected, glorified physical body, but angels, could they go? Supposedly they could go with physical uh, object, but uh, here's, here's the old question. You probably heard it. Theologians in the Middle Ages did actually debate how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. Not the point of a pen, but the head of a pen. You'd say, who knows, who cares? Why do they ask that? It has to do with angels. Can they occupy the same space as other angels? Can they go through each other, not just through physical things? How many angels can do that, even on just a small thing like the head of a pen? And if they're moving around like dancing. So it actually gets to the question of angels not having physical bodies. And the answer is, we don't know how many can do this. There's not enough information on it. But the point is that they do move, and they're compared to chariots and horses that it says here, very strong steeds. Angels are very powerful. The Bible calls them mighty angels. But they're not almighty and they're not uh, omnipresent. They still have to move. Make a list of differences sometimes uh, in your spare time. The differences between angels and humans. I've already mentioned one. They, they don't have bodies. We do. They are sinless, we are sinful, but also the difference between angels and God. God is infinite, angels are not. And I've said before, there are levels of being. First off, there's nothingness. Actually, beneath that, Isaiah says, something is less than nothing. Figure that out. It's the only way you can figure that out is mathematically and you know, negative something beyond nothing. And then you get something that is physical but not alive, like metal, like rocks. And then you move up to um, things that have some kind of basic life, like plants, and then move up to amoeba, bacteria, animals, and then human beings that are not mere animals, and then angels above us. And then off the scale is God who is not anything like this. He is the being of beings. And so do a study on angels, what the Bible really says.
So here are these um, angels pictured as uh, chariots and horses. And so they're identified as spirits, verse 5. Verse 6, the one with the black horses is going to the north country. The white are going after them and the dappled are going toward the south country. So they have a direction going through between the mountains. And this could be signifying that God is going to do something in these areas. Uh, The north isn't just technically straight north. You'd get to Lebanon and Syria and then up to Turkey. But in the Bible, north is actually northeast, which would be Babylon. Remember Matthew 2, wise men came from the east. They came from Persia, which is right next to Babylon. So it says here, these horses going there. The south means Egypt. And when it says here east, that probably means directly east, what we would call Arabia. You say, well, why didn't it mention west? What's west of Israel? Mediterranean Sea. No people out there until you get way out to Cyprus and the whatever. But then it goes on to say that they're going all around the world. So maybe this is just their first stop. Verse 7 now. Then the strong steeds, that means horses, went out eager to go that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. There we go. And he said, go, walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. Three times it says that. They're going everywhere. Notice it says they're eager to go. You ever see in a horse race, those horses are chomping at the bits. And there's a verse in the Bible that says that like they can smell war. And good jockeys know, those horses know, they're just about to bolt out of there and they're just, you know, ready to go. Well, it says these angels are like that. What does that tell us about angels? Angels not only obey God, they're eager to obey God. Psalm 103 says, um, bless the Lord all you hosts that fulfill his, uh, his orders. They always obey God. It's their highest privilege to do whatever God says, however big or small, and I've used this analogy. What if God said to one angel, even a high angel like Michael, Michael, go deep in the rainforest of Brazil to where nobody has ever gone, go out there, go up to a certain leaf and just turn it over and nobody will ever know about that. That angel will say, yes, Lord. Nothing is too big or too small for angels. We need to imitate angels in this. Obey whatever God says, whatever big or small. Not talking about turning over that leaf. Uh, Someone wrote a book a few years ago an interesting title, Picking up a pen for the Lord. And it has nothing to do with picking up pens, but it was taken from a saying of a British preacher that said we should obey God even in something as trivial as picking up a pen or just a little piece of paper uh, on the clean floor. It says do it unto the Lord. So here are these angels eager to obey God. We should be like them. As well, like Jesus said, pray thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's done in heaven by the angels, should be done on earth by us. Now it says here to walk, but they remember they're like um, chariots and horses traveling. Walk, as I said this morning, means to travel, to move, to traverse. And three times it says throughout the whole earth. Think about that. There are angels at work all around the world. And evidently in some places more than others, and they move from one to another, they're particularly 
interested, as we say in Daniel, in key places at key time, like in war and things like that. And also large cities where there are many people that probably, where there are definitely, to quote Edwards, tis certain that there are more angels at work in New York City and Washington than there are in the middle of the Sahara Desert where there's nobody out there, except maybe in the occasional Bedouin. So they move around, and just like they protect Christians, sometimes they come and go. We're always going to have at least one angel protecting us, and sometimes many more, like if we're in danger. Verse 8 now, And he called to me and spoke to me, saying, See, those who go toward the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. Now what does that mean, rest to the spirit? Does that mean he's... Tired? No. It's like in Genesis chapter 1 in the beginning of chapter 2. It says, now God rested from his work. God didn't get tired. He's almighty. But what it meant was he's finished doing his job. And so now the angels are doing what the spirit does not do directly. There's some theology in that. There's some things that God himself does directly, like a miracle. Other things he does indirectly through providence what we call concurrence. God is at work in everything. The weather, us, animals, everything. But he uses second causes. Have you ever heard that? It's, anybody here like to shoot pool? I used to love to shoot pool. And I was pretty good. <laughs> the signs of a misspent youth. I didn't gamble, but I like to shoot. And you learn how to do a combination shot. You hit this ball, it hits that one, and it goes this rail and that rail. And I used to love to see the guys could do, do a three-ball combination, two-rail shot. That is not easy. In other words, it's using this to hit that, to hit that. That's what God does. He uses second and third causes. He affects this, that affects that. And the momentum of like in, in billiard balls, that's the invisible power of God at work in the universe. Everything. That's the invisible power of God working through these second and third causes like the momentum. And so sometimes he does it directly, other times second causes, including angels. And so it's like here, he's giving rest to the spirit. The spirit's not doing it directly, he's doing it indirectly through these angels that are very um, operative. Question, why doesn't God do everything simply directly? Why does he use second causes? Why does he use us? Why does he use us to share the gospel? Why didn't he just write it up in the sky? He puts it in the heart of people about his law, but he doesn't put the gospel in their heart. We, why does God do some things directly and other times indirectly? Well, we can say uh, uh, is to test our faith or to show that we're responsible and God can use us. But God uses even animals. And sometimes he interrupts his normal providence, and we call that miracles, but um, anyway, that's kind of stretching it a bit here. He gives rest to the spirit, meaning the spirit is not working directly. And it mentions the north country. Now, when is this happening? Very interesting. One scholar said, well, there are three guesses that this is referring to something in the past. But he says, no, this doesn't seem to fit anything in the past. Or it could mean a prophecy of something in the near future, or thirdly, in the far future, or... Another interpretation is this is not talking about a literal thing happening, but um, spiritual principles that God is teaching. Those are some 
guesses that we can say now when we interpret prophecy. Is this literal? Is this figurative? Is this talking about something in the near future or in the far future? Or is it kind of retroactively talking about something that already happened? And sometimes that, that's reversed in future prophecies. Take a note of this. There's different kinds of prophecies. For example, one of the most famous prophecies in the Old Testament has to do with Jesus. Isaiah 53, and it's spoken about in the past tense. He did this. He was rejected. He was despised. He hadn't even come to earth yet. It's talking about a future event as if it's already happened. Uh, scholars call that a proleptic event. So you're talking about a future thing as if it's happened, and sometimes it's the other way around. Talk about something in the past as if it's still future. So just a little interesting detail. Verse 9, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, We mentioned that phrase earlier. <coughs> it's comparable to the prophet saying, Thus says the Lord. Another interpretation is that when it says the word of the Lord, word should be capitalized. That this is, who is called the word in the Bible? Jesus. That's the Lagos, John chapter 1. And uh, in their phrases like this, it could be a person. The Hebrew word dabar means word. Or in Aramaic, memra. And so perhaps this is, the Lord Jesus came and spoke. Notice because it says the word is speaking. Verse 10 now. Receive the gift from the captives. From, now I'm going to try to pronounce these names. Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah. Not Jedediah. And go uh, the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. I mentioned some other names later. And it says, uh, receive this gift and go there. And to be honest, I'm not sure what, what these are. These are probably literal people and that this does apply to something that's going on literally in, in, um, in Jerusalem. And again... It's mixed in the Bible. It's hard sometimes to differentiate what is symbolic and what is literal. This is probably something literal because when it uses symbolic language or what's called apocalyptic language like these horses, um, those usually don't assign specific names. This does. And so uh, it says, receive this gift and go there. And then verse 11, take the spirit, the silver and gold and make an elaborate crown, set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Crowns. Has anybody ever seen the British crown? Did you ever see that in the Tower of London? Okay, I see one person nodding and one person not. Our resident Brit did not see it and our resident Colorado has seen it and I've seen it. It's got that huge diamond on top. This is as big as a hen's egg. And it's locked up in bulletproof glass. Revelation says Jesus has seven crowns, the number of perfection, because he is the king of kings of kings of kings of kings. But also he was given a crown of thorns on earth. But the Bible says crowns are given to us. We rule with him and then we give our crowns to him, showing that we submit to his authority. And this crown here is given to Joshua, the high priest, who was mentioned back in chapter 3, is a type of Christ. Because the word Joshua in Hebrew is Yeshua. In Matthew 1, the, the angel gave the uh, 
name Yeshua to baby Jesus, and it means God saves, or to be precise, Yahweh saves. Jesus is God in the flesh saving us. And so there's a literal thing that has figurative typological significance as we saw earlier. Jesus is the ultimate high priest. By the way, when it says Joshua, son of Jehozadak, it's Joshua that's the high priest, not Jehozadak the high priest. It goes back to the previous antecedent. Okay, verse 12. Then speak to him saying, thus says the Lord of hosts. I'd remind you, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D refers to the holy name of God, Yahweh, some pronounce it Jehovah. Hosts means um, angelic armies. God has all of them in his command. Saying, the man whose name is the branch, from his place he shall branch out, interesting turn of words, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. This is a very clear messianic prophecy. Messianic prophecy means a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And there are many in the Bible. I did a series on this, oh, I guess about 10 lessons some years ago. How many could you name? Come on, Bible students, go home, get out a piece of paper or a tablet or something. Say, well, let's see. Someone tell me very quickly, what was the very first prophecy of the coming of Jesus? Hmm? Genesis 3.15. Someone will crush the head of the serpent. Let's name another one. Any in the Psalms? Psalm 22. Any in the gospel according to Isaiah? There's a bunch there. Yeah, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a child. Another one, um, he, his name will be Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Isaiah chapter 9, chapter 53. Did you know there's another one that talks about them pulling out the beard of the Messiah? Go look that up. Uh, can you, is there a prophecy about where the Messiah would be born? Come on, class. Micah 5 2. Well done, class. He said that in unity, unison. Uh, he'd be born in Bethlehem. And there are several other ones about his person or his work. So again, how many can you name? The Jews studied this. They would have said, well, this is a prophecy of HaMasiach, the Messiah. Notice the first thing. It says, behold, the man. They later wondered, well, who is Messiah? Is he a man and an angel? Is he God or something else? No, it says he is, he is a man. He's more than a man, but he's still a man. Think of that. The man. What did Pontius Pilate say, kind of like the high priest, being high priest that year prophesied? What did Pontius Pilate say when he presented Jesus to the crowd after he had had him whipped him? Maybe he said it in Latin, Ecce homo, behold the man. There's significance. He wasn't just saying, hey, this is the man you guys want. What he is saying, behold the man, I find no fault in him. This is the perfect man. He said it without realizing the full significance. The man, the perfect man. First Timothy 2, 5 says there's one God and one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. Remember, he's both God and man. He's God that became the God man. Never forget his perfect humanity. He was a Jew. He was a male. He assumed a body and a soul. And he is still 
human body and soul forever. He is the eternal God man. So there's the first thing about him. And it says whose name is the branch. Interesting that it's capitalized. Capital B, capital R, and so forth. We saw this earlier in, um, in Zechariah. And it's mentioned several times in Jeremiah. Now let me show you the fulfillment of this that a lot of people miss. Turn to Matthew chapter 2. Just a few pages over. Matthew 1, giving them two names, Jesus and also Emmanuel. And that's what we're told. And then something else about him at the end of chapter 2. You remember the wise men and the trip to Egypt and the killing of the children and so forth. And they end up going back to Nazareth where Joseph had come from. And it says, verse 23, he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now scholars look at that last phrase and said, there is no prophecy that says, quote, he shall be called a Nazarene. There is, but not as directly as they think. Nazarene. Hebrew word is Nazar. Branch. He shall be called the branch. That's what Matthew is saying. He is the branch one, the Nazarene. He is not a Nazarite. What are three or four things about a Nazarite? Come on, class, tell me. Name one. Couldn't cut his hair or his beard. Remember Samson? How about Shemuel? Actually, Samuel. Lifelong, lived to be 80, never had a haircut or trimmed his beard. You talk about a long-haired, long-bearded man, Samuel. Uh, any, uh, Any other things? Yep, uh, you couldn't eat raisins, grapes, couldn't drink wine. Anything else? Did I have someone over here? Couldn't touch a dead body. Was Jesus in Nazareth? Did he ever drink wine? Last Supper. Did he ever touch a dead body? Yes, when he raised him from the dead. Did he have long hair? No, he probably had shorter hair because that was the custom. Only Nazarites were allowed to have long hair. He did have a beard because we're told in Isaiah it was plucked from him. So Jesus was a Nazarene, and the the word play is he is the branch from the city of branches, Nazareth, Nazarene, Nazar. You see how there's significance in this, and this is what Matthew's all about, saying he is the Messiah. He was born of a virgin, chapter 1. He went into Egypt and came back. That was a prophecy, chapter 2, verse 15. And he is the branch, the Nazarene, and he comes from the city of the branch, Nazareth. So that's a little way that you can study um, messianic prophecies. What else? Well, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. That could be extended. He is the branch, and we are the twigs and the leaves built upon him. But also, the Bible gives that prophecy, the Messiah, that will grow as a... um, a, a little stick out of the root of David. Um, the, the family line of David's cut off, but that's where Messiah comes from. And just a little twig comes and becomes a big tree. thought of that in my backyard about 10 years ago. We had a snowstorm and an enormous tree fell down. But a little bit of its stump was there. And over these last years, little twigs have grown up with leaves. That's a picture of Jesus from the root and and offspring of David comes this branch. It'll branch out. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And it goes on to say, 
go back there to Zechariah. He shall build the temple of the Lord, verse 13. Yea, he shall build the temple of the Lord. How? There are those that say this is to be taken literally. And it's not talking about the rebuilding of, the, of Solomon's temple, but talking about something Messiah will do. And so it's popular amongst dispensationalists to say at the second coming, Jesus will set up a Jewish kingdom on earth, not Gentiles, they're up in the sky, but it'll be Jewish. And they will rebuild the temple and have literal animal sacrifices. Again, absolutely not. They're taking literal and misapplying it. Have they never read the book of Hebrews? There are no more animal sacrifices. There's no need for a temple anymore. But then how did the Messiah build his temple? Did not Jesus say, I will build my church? And are we called, we're called the temple of the Lord, not just our bodies, but us together. And that's what, I think that's the fulfillment of this. Jesus, the Messiah came and he builds the true temple of the Lord. It's not brick and mortar and stone, but of human beings, his people. And Jesus did that and he's still doing that. Come to verse 13 now. Build the temple of the Lord and he shall bear the glory and sit on Sit and rule on his throne. He shall be a priest on his throne. Counsel of peace shall be between them. The glory. Now, you'd have to remember one of the purposes of the temple that took over from the tabernacle, these concentric um, rectangles. And in the center was the Holy of Holies. And the main purpose was to offer a sacrifice on Yom Kippur. And if it was done properly, what would God do to show I accept it? He would show his glory, the bright light that only that high priest got to see. Jesus, who is called the priest here, he already has made the ultimate sacrifice. And when God accepted it, it's like God showed his glory throughout heaven at the ascension when Jesus went up there. We looked at that in Ephesians a few weeks ago. So you see, he put all this together. There'd be glory in heaven when Christ died and ascended because he had given the ultimate final sacrifice. And it says, he shall sit and rule on his throne. Think about it. He's a priest as well as a king. He is a priestly king and a kingly priest. He's also the prophet. He's the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. The three offices of Christ. He's the word of the Lord. He speaks as prophet. He is the priest that offered himself. He is king of kings. And he is the only person in the Bible that, all, that fulfilled all three offices. Nobody else was all three. No king was also a prophet and a priest. There were um, prophets that were also a king or a priest, but only Jesus was all three. The closest was Samuel, who was a judge as well as a, as well as a prophet and a priest. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king to the superlative degree. King of kings, priest of priests, prophet of prophets. Now, the last phrase there has a wide variety of interpretations. The Council of Peace, that is a peace treaty, covenant of peace, shall be between them both. Who them both? Um, it's talking about the Messiah, but is this something between him and these other names that have been mentioned? Uh, perhaps. Or it could just simply mean there's peace everywhere. This peace treaty is the Prince of Peace, peace on earth, made peace for us. Some of the older Calvinists, especially Puritans, said this is not talking about any of that. This is talking about the, 
covenant of peace between the Father, Son, and the Spirit back in eternity. Well, there is such a covenant. It's called the covenant of redemption. I'm not so sure that that's what this verse is predicting. Lastly, verses 14 and 15. Now the elaborate crown, it's already been mentioned, shall be for a memorial in the temple of the Lord. And it goes back to maybe a literal fulfillment because there was reinstitution of some kind of royalty. You hear these names again. Halim, Tobijah, Jediah, and Han. Interesting name. The son of Zephaniah. Is that the same Zephaniah as the other prophet? Even those from afar shall come and build the temple of the Lord. So it's talking, again, back to the little, because that's what prophecy does. Sometimes the nearer fulfillment of the prophecy in a literal sense, and then a more symbolic one in the far distance. So they will come from afar, build the temple of the Lord, or rebuild it, because remember, it hadn't been completed at this time. That was the setting at that moment. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So it's back to the temple in Zechariah's day, and specific people are named. I'm not sure what about them. And it says, others will come from afar. And in Hebrew language, that means from outside Israel. Uh, Gentiles. Well, we learned that when Solomon built his temple, he, he, he got help from some Gentiles up in Lebanon to bring cedar wood, the best wood there is in the Middle East. But you can also see something else here with the greater temple, the prophecy that it wasn't just Jewish Christians that were part of the temple of Christ, but Gentile converts. That's what the book of Ezekiel, Ephesians tells us. Come from afar, from all around the world, perhaps in fulfillment of the journey of these angelic charioteers, then it says, and then you will know, and we saw that phrase earlier, preached a sermon on that phrase a couple of years ago. It's found something like 60 times in Ezekiel. I'm going to do this, then you will know I am the Lord your God. Either by way of blessing or punishment. And then it concludes with a um, conditional promise. This shall come to pass if, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. This tells us that some prophecies and promises in the Bible are conditional. The if then. If you do this, then I will do that. That's zeroing in on human responsibility. If you believe in the gospel, you will be saved. If you do not repent, you will perish. The if then. Other prophecies and promises are unconditional. God fulfills all the conditions. And it's not always easy to differentiate those two kinds of promises and prophecies, but I'll leave it to you sometime to study them. And that's our survey of Zechariah chapter 6. Let us pray. Father, as we go through these books that are not easy to understand, humble us, give us light, and even if we don't understand the full significance of how they are fulfilled, help us to Rest upon the principles and the promises that are in those very words. Thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.